Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of QSR Uncut. I'm your host, Danny Klein, Editorial Director at QSR, joined by my colleague, Ben Coley, and co-host. And to everybody out there, early happy holidays. If you celebrate Hanukkah like I do, I guess it's a late holidays, and um, you know, I will continue to give you podcasts throughout the holiday season, so if you're at home, you know, please give us a listen, a review on iTunes. If you so choose, we appreciate it. But anyway, this week, our guest is Fat Brand CEO, Andy Wiederhorn. So anybody, if you followed the restaurant industry 2021, had a lot of storylines, but I would say that Fat Brands was probably at the very top in terms of you know what we saw on that consolidation front, the acquisition front, just in M&A activity in general as the restaurant industry continues to recover. You know, Fat Brands, you know, we're talking a 17 brand portfolio at this point. You know, they announced the last, actually it was today that the Native Grill and Wings for $20 million acquisition closed, which was Fat Brands' fourth transaction of the year, if I'm not mistaken. And we're talking, you know, north of $890 million in, you know, one calendar year or two, you know, by global franchise group, Twin Peaks, Fazoli's, and Native. So, to put it lightly, I think Andy has a lot to say. <laughs> He's probably been very busy, and I'll open the floor to you, Andy, just to kind of give a little overview of you know your role in the company, and you know just what a wild year this has been. I, I know from talking in the past that this was not something that wasn't coming already. You know whether or not it was kind of accelerated by the conditions or not, or just a matter of timing is. Uh, I think a very interesting part of what's happening. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I'm Andy Wiederhorn again, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Fat Brands. Uh, Fat Brands today, um, 17 different restaurant brands, 2,300 restaurants, uh, about 100 of them company-owned stores, 2,200 franchise locations. So most of our revenues are, are royalties and franchise fees. We also own a big factory in Atlanta that makes uh, a lot of the dough for our um, our. Uh, cookie business and pretzel mix business, um, things like that. And we operate in 40 different countries around the world, uh, 48 U.S. states, and we have about 800 franchisees in our portfolio. About half of them are multi-unit operators. Uh, also, in addition to that 2,300 unit franchise base, we have a pipeline of about 800 more restaurants to be built by our franchisee groups over the coming four or five years, just organic growth. So that's a really healthy position to be in with uh, five or six of our brands that just have a lot of pent up demand to build new restaurants like Twin Peaks, like Fazoli's, like Fat Burger, and also Great American Cookie and Marble Slab Ice Cream Pretzel Makers, a bunch of, uh, and Round Table Pizza, a bunch of brands there that have make up that 800 uh, unit uh, organic growth pipeline. Uh, so yeah, to, you know, look, if you think about 2021, certainly didn't start out the year thinking we'd spend almost a billion dollars buying uh, a few different brands. But during the pandemic, we bought Johnny Rockets, which was a double for us. We went from 300 and something restaurants to 700 restaurants with the acquisition of Johnny Rockets. And that was a little bit of a gutsy move because it was before the vaccine had been created. Um, you know, we took a long view that Johnny Rockets is a great brand and you know, half international, half domestic. It's going to be around for the long term. We had tried to buy it for several years before we, we finally did during uh, 2020. And so, uh, you know, the deal finally came together and, and, and we were very happy to see that get done. But that just sort of set the stage for, um, we felt like we had our financing in order, our house in order. Um, the brands were starting to see, you know, reopenings everywhere. And so as we entered 2021, uh, opportunistically, we found a number of 
private equity firms or, or um, you know, founder type transactions where they were ready to sell either because they lost a couple years in their in their time period, you know, normal holding period because of COVID, where maybe a PE firm would normally hold something five to seven years, but okay, now it's already five years. Maybe they only got three years to work hard on a brand, two years of trying to keep it alive. And, you know, they felt like, hey, we lost some time here. It's time to move on. Let's recycle our investment. So, you know, we took advantage of that a little bit. Some of it was just natural timing of people that already owned things five or six years and time to roll out of it. Um, and we also kind of looked strategically at these aren't all integration plays. So Global Franchise Group, big acquisition, $442 million, um, 1,400 restaurants adding to our portfolio. Um, total synergies play. How do we eliminate the headquarters, the back office, merge accounting, legal, um, take advantage of that where we already have those things at that brand. So there's a way to save money. We picked up this factory, which has a lot of excess capacity. So very interested in that. But when we move on to acquire Twin Peaks in the fall and then uh, even Fazoli's just um, two days ago, um, those we, we felt were not really synergy plays, they're growth stories. So Twin Peaks has 84, 85, 86 restaurants, something like that open today, uh, another 18 to open by next summer and more than 117 in their pipeline. And so our view of, of Twin Peaks was, let's just leave that management team alone and let them run and not try to ring out that last few dollars of synergies by by jamming it through here. And, and you know, that'll make the, the growth easier for us. So even though we spent a billion dollars, we're not having to absorb the integration of a billion dollars worth of acquisitions all in the next 30 days. Same thing with Vizzoli's, very strong management team, very, uh, very capable CEO, Carl Howard, just like Joe Hummel at Twin Peaks, very capable. And so, you know, Carl's got the same thing. He has a 114 store pipeline to build out over the next couple of years at Vizzoli's. And our focus is, let him run with that. Let him get that done. Let's leave his management team in place. It's, we, we can always talk about synergies later, but right now it doesn't make sense. Let those guys run. Native Grill and Wings was an easy one. That's a lot of synergy play. And, and so my whole point to that is that even though we've, we've made some significant acquisitions this year, there was some method to the madness of what are we integrating and what are we going to leave standalone? And so it wasn't that painful to, um, to swallow. Yeah, you know, to your your point there about Carl and and Joe, I mean, you've got quite a roster of of restaurant CEOs now to who are joining the company, and you know, I don't, I guess that's kind of an underplayed, you know, element of of M and A, and especially in in the situation where you, you know, keep those, you know, some of that management in place. But I mean, how much does that strengthen the company now that you have, you know, all these people in the room with great ideas who are you know, operators, operators, so to speak, and who really know the industry. I mean, we've both talked to Carl many times and then has talked to Joe as well. And I mean, they're wealth of, you know, wealth of insight. And has that made you a stronger company, you know, on the back end where people may not notice it as much as they just say, okay, now you have X amount of units and revenue and, and those kind of tangible figures. Yeah, today we have 17 members of our executive committee or senior senior management team. And that includes Joe and Carl. We also have other brand presidents of our casual dining division, like Greg Nettleton, or the QSR division, like Jen Johnson, who used to run just GFG. And so in doing so, and, and one more, uh, Jake Brookshield, who runs all our burger businesses in our fast casual space. So, you know, we have their sort of five different uh, brand or group presidents, you know, running things in, in categories, fast casual, QSR casual, polished casual. And then we have um, Raphael Tomlin running our factory business. So 
you know, we have all these guys running different businesses underneath that. That's besides our finance and accounting roles, our marketing roles, our franchise development roles. So absolutely, um, adding to our senior management was a key component uh, thread of 2021, not just by the brand presidents that we added when we made these acquisitions, but we added a new CFO and new general counsel and new head of capital markets. We really invested heavily at the beginning of 2021. All those last three names uh, or positions we hired in like April of 2021 ahead of these acquisitions, knowing that if we're going to scale up, we need the management team in place. And so, you know, it's no longer the Andy show, if you will. You know, we have a very deep management team today running these different brands and, uh, you know, all reporting in and working together, you know, wherever possible. So how has this changed you as a leader? You know, I I think um, COVID really influenced restaurant leadership in a lot of ways, but, you know, just this past year or so, you know, I remember that Johnny Rockets deal being seen as such a game changer and really it was kind of the start of the waterfall, but just personally speaking, you know, how are you adjusting to being a leader of this type of organization? You know, what's you know, interesting is you become, so, so we sort of graduated to the place we were trying to get to for a number of years. It took us probably a couple of years longer to get to this scale than what we originally intended. If you had asked me when we went public in 2017, you know, what was our goal for the next five years? This may have been what it was, but it took longer to get here. Things always take longer, but it certainly took longer to get here. Um, I think we struggled with raising capital and, and, and cleaning up our balance sheet and growing to, to have scale. And so that was a, that was a very um, you know, narrowly focused uh, battle to get where we wanted to get to. And we achieved that in, in early 2020, um, right ahead of COVID, which was you know, very fortunate in, in timing. Um, and then, you know, it sort of shifts today. It's very gratifying that, that I feel like the company, you know, we're in the, I don't know, top 25 restaurant companies in the country in terms of number of units and scale. And, um, you know, do we want to get into the top 10 at some point, maybe in the next five years or 10 years? Absolutely. But there's no hurry to get there because we have this huge organic pipeline. And so now I find myself really uh, as more of a coach than having to do it myself. You know, in those early days, I did a lot of it myself or with, with um you know, a couple of my sons who work with me uh, at Fat Brands who run key positions like development or, or um, marketing or, or COO type of spots. But today that management team is so deep and so diverse and so experienced that it's really about coaching them all about how to work together, how to ring out synergies wherever possible, how to leverage our purchasing power. We have 600 plus million dollars a year in purchasing power today on 2.2 billion in sales. And so, uh, you know, that's just a different role today to, to sort of make sure we're executing everywhere, then do it yourself before. And, and that's really, I think, the biggest change for me. All right. All right. So uh, I'll toss it to you, Ben, here. I know you've got some questions yourself, so <laughs> just fire away. Right. And, and, and Andy, you know, even prior to 2021, you guys have been in the acquisition business for, you know, a decade, you know, collectively you've been, um, you know, buying up these brands for, for many years. So I was hoping, you know, could you provide you know some insight into how your company approaches this you know M and A process? You know how do you you know what's the process behind engaging you know potential restaurants and, and determining whether they're the right fit? Right, and and look, you know, not every acquisition is perfect. Not every acquisition goes as well as you think it's going to go. There's always you know speed bumps along the way. Um, I certainly made some some mistakes along the way too. Um, you know, I think we we struggled with some smaller brands that we acquired. Um, or some legacy brands we, we acquired in terms of you know, how they performed during the pandemic. Uh, you know, we're look, we're predominantly a franchise organization. And so we want to acquire brands 
that are franchisee based and not really company owned store based. And I think we've been very true to form in that business as we've looked at acquisitions. It doesn't mean that, that we would never acquire an all company owned store brand, but we'd have to have a path to converting it to the franchise business quickly to, um, to make that fit in our, in our portfolio. It doesn't mean like Twin Peaks is 25% uh, corporate stores. Fazoli's is 25% corporate stores. We may or may not refranchise those stores over time. It's a function of whether the market, uh, you know, if we have to give up that much EBITDA, that much cash flow from those stores because they're very profitable company-owned stores, do we want, will we get credit for converting those to franchises? Can we sell them for enough to be worth giving up that cash flow or do we just keep it? I mean, obviously 100 company-owned stores out of 2,300 restaurants is a pretty small percentage. Um, but so when we look at a business, we're trying to say, is it predominantly franchised? Do they have a track record in franchising that's going to work uh, in multiple states or multiple markets? Um, do they have a diverse franchisee base? Are the unit level economics something that you can, you can run with in terms of sales to investment ratio, payback time period, things like that. Um, average unit volumes, you know, wh wh what level, what break point to units cash flow. And so those are all things that we look at often just to look at the metrics, you know, we're, so I tend to run our business differently than I think a lot of guys in the restaurant industry, even though I grew up in the restaurant space since I was a kid working in, in my family's restaurant business uh, from everything from washing dishes to, to working in the front of the house and, and, and being the maitre d'. And, you know, I swore I would never be in it. And here, look at we are today. Um, you know, but I look at the business as the franchisee is my customer. It's not really the guy eating the hamburger, the chicken wings, the pizza or whatever. It's the franchisee and the franchisee has to make money. And so if our whole focus is how do we make sure our franchise partners make money? Because if they make money, they're going to build more restaurants and pay us more royalties and everybody wins. If they don't make money, we know what happens. So that's been a, a real focus for us when we're looking at an acquisition. You know, are these restaurants profitable at the franchisee level? Can we bring scale to them, like maybe save them two or three points in purchasing costs? Can we give them marketing muscle? Is there something else that we can do? Best practices, technology, something else that will make them more successful? Or can our sales team help sell that brand to other franchisees in our portfolio? And those are sort of levers that we can pull or things that we look at when we're making an acquisition to, to try to figure it out. Is there, is there, I was going to say as a follow-up, is there any, you know, discussion as, you know, as far as the balance of um, what's in the portfolio, like maybe, um, this is the right number of uh, wing brands. Um, now it's maybe now it's the time we enter this category. Maybe it's now the time we enter um, brands with this kind of cuisine. How much um, is under consideration? How much is the I guess the, the food category of the brand um, under consideration, and how that um, kind of um, fits with um, what you guys already have in the portfolio? Well, you know, it's a good, it's an interesting question from two angles. Like we looked hard at the Del Taco deal. Um, we, you know, we put in a, a preliminary bid, we did diligence and we just decided that it's too many company owned stores, you know, 50, 50, um, more than 300 company owned stores. And that was just going to be a lot of work. I think it's a great deal for Jack in the box. They're in that business or in that QSR space. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think for us, we just felt like it was a lot of heavy lifting to integrate and to take over that, that kind of business. And, you know, I was happy to see somebody get it and, and at, at the right price and it makes sense. So, you know, that's, that's one angle of it. Um, you know, I, I, when you're when you're making these acquisitions and, and you're trying to, to figure out, you know, what, what's going to fit in your portfolio, 
I look at our polished casual dining space where we put Twin Peaks, right? These sports bars. We could add to that space nicely because we only have 100 restaurants and it's going to grow. And, you know, geographically, Twin Peaks can grow up to 500 units across the country because it's, it's not concentrated. But we could do that by acquisition as well. It could be some other brands that are, um, you know, that fall in that sports bar category. Uh, we just don't really want to go heavy, heavy company on store. Uh, if you look at the burger brands like Fast Casual, you know, we already have three really strong burger brands, you know, Fat Burger, Johnny Rockets and Elevation Burger, which is an organic grass fed burger brand. So we can kind of go in any demographic, talk to a landlord and say, do you want a more urban brand? Do you want a more healthy like soccer mom, yoga, yoga lover brand, of, you know, organic grass fed? Or do you want a theme brand like Johnny Rockets? But I don't know that we really need another burger brand per se. You know, we've looked at some other burger concepts. Um, Bid, uh, we bid and worked hard, looked hard at Fuddruckers and just couldn't get a deal done there. And then Johnny Rockets got done, you know, right after that. And so I think that's, you know, interesting. On the on the wing side of things, uh, Native Wings was just a tuck in. We don't have a lot of wing locations in Arizona. I think we had one Hurricane Grill and Wings, but we own Buffalo's Cafe, now Hurricane Grill and Wings and, and Native Wings. And if you walked into any one of those three restaurants with a blindfold on, they're all the same. It's a separate bar serving wings in a, in a full menu and the dining room, same thing, full menu, TV package, family dining, um, but, you know, with alcohol. Um, and that and we didn't have, you know, 20 something restaurants in Arizona. We had one. So uh, it, it was an easy add on for us and, and very much a synergies play. We could do that deal 10 more times um, geographically where it made sense to expand and pick up some local um, you know, wing brands or regional wing brands that would make sense for a seller and make sense for us as a buyer. So I don't think we we exclude that, like like I've said in the burger space, where we already have the, all the burger brands we need, and we have a 400 and something store pipeline on the burger side of things that makes up our 800 store pipeline. So you know I think as we look at it, it's it's a little bit more category oriented now. Like if you look at um, Great American Cookie or Marble Slab, where we've got a lot of co-branding going on there, we call those co-branded locations Cookies and Cream, but it's really just ice cream and cookies, right? There's an opportunity to add to that category where there's other cookie brands that could be molded in with ice cream and and the factory makes all the cookie dough. So you also get the added benefit of more production out of our factory, which has plenty of capacity. So that's kind of how I'm thinking of it. Um, I tried to stay away from fine dining and been very clear that we're just not going to go into fine dining because I think it's hard to franchise with excellence, with quality. You need operators who are passionate in fine dining. And I think that's hard in the franchise business to have consistency across fine dining in a number of locations. And then I've also stayed away from what I'll call, you know, extremely ethnic oriented brands, um, whether that's a Korean barbecue sushi, something that's complicated in the kitchen. And therefore, can you find the right cook staff to franchise it and, and have consistency and quality across the brand in terms of scale? I mean, I love those food categories, but I just don't know if you can grow them um, fast enough with consistency in a franchising model and so, you know, I think that sort of defines how we continue to grow. Um, and look, you know, today at the end of 2021, I mean, we don't need to buy another brand at all for a long time. We need to build out our pipeline. We need to, with 800 stores, you know, to go, it's 150 stores a year probably. We uh, want to grow our factory business, making more products for our franchisees and, and perhaps others. And, you know, there's things we can do on our balance sheet, re refinancing our bonds to, to improve our, our interest rate and save a lot of cash flow. So we have a very focused sort of 2022 on executing on these acquisitions. And, you know, I think we might buy something here and there, but it won't be the same pace that 2021 
has been because I feel like we're at that at that uh, you know a cruising altitude standpoint where we just have to execute. Yeah, now you have a an Italian quick serve too. I mean, that's a, I mean that's a category with zero saturation in terms of of anyone beyond Fazoli's, and you have some fast casuals kind of you know, dotted across the map, but it's such a cool space and, and it's so with only 200 units open and 114 more in the pipeline. It, it just has so much room to grow and we could co-brand that space. Like we could co-brand it with pizza, like with round table or something that there's an opportunity there to put in, you know, all the different um, pastas and meatballs and stuff that, that are very easy to cook, you know, in a, in, um, in the on-premises and use them in the delivery cycle for round table, which does, you know, its own delivery uh, or third-party delivery. So I, I agree with you. Um, I think Fazoli's is really interesting growth. I mean, it, for sure, we paid a growth multiple to buy that brand. They had a big growth pipeline, and and that's not counting on the incremental, cro- you know, co- um, co-branding or cross-selling of franchises to our base. Yeah, and you know, kind of speaking of that co-branding, looking at it from a different angle of that virtual world. I know that's been a big part of the discussion for you all before, and this ability to do ghost kitchens and, and all that kind of stuff and having all these kitchens and capacity and brands and types of cuisines and markets. And I mean, how much has all of this opened up that world to fat brands moving forward? You know, you talked about the growth itself in the terms of the restaurants, but just with getting your food to people and, and through these new channels, I mean, has this been just really blown up by kind of this year of um, acquisitions at Fat Brands? So we've been a big fan. We started co-branding back in 2012. So a long time ago, we started co-branding with Fat Burger and Buffalo's Express, um, where you could have you know, burgers and wings at one kitchen. And that worked out famously for us. And we have more than 150 co-branded locations um, of just the Fat Burger brand. We looked at ghost kitchens. We, we dabbled in a few. We have some ghost kitchen partners. Um, you know, some have been successful, some have not. I've always been on the fence about whether ghost kitchens can generate enough top line revenue for it to make sense for the operator. It's going to work for the landlord, but can it make sense for the operator because you don't have a brick and mortar restaurant to make up the balance of your business? And, you know, look, in, if you have a 35, 40% delivery and to go business and you have 60% from on premise um, and you don't, you know, how do you make that up in a ghost kitchen? I think it's harder. Virtual restaurant is is a is very straightforward because you already have your brick and mortar restaurant you already have your sales and now you're adding incremental sales out of the back door for delivery only either of your brand or other brands and that it will fit in your kitchen and it's it's great incremental revenue and you already have your cook staff there you're already paying your rent so i'm a huge fan of virtual restaurants for as many of our brands as possible um you know and i think that's how you know you, you definitely leverage that um, but brick and mortar is here to stay, and and you know that's a that's a key component. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I think you know you mentioned a little bit moving forward as twenty twenty two being kind of a opportunity for fat brands to maybe slow that pace down a little bit and focus on growth. And but you know just from your perspective, I mean, what do you see kind of happening industry wide? Do you think that that's on deck for? restaurants in general, that there'll be less M&A activity, less consolidation, you know, or is this going to continue to be a trend coming into the year? I think something that was interesting last year was you saw franchisees themselves buying actual companies like Ampex and Aubon Pond and things of that nature. Um, And that was maybe something I didn't foresee coming. But, you know, what do you think this year has in store in this 
you know, crazy world of restaurant franchising that we all, you know, love to follow. Yeah, we, I mean, we bid on Avon Pond, we, we bid on Village Inn, we bid on, there's a lot of deals. You know, what you don't read about are the, the 10 times as many deals we didn't win or didn't do besides the ones we did do, right? You think we did a lot, we looked at a ton more. And, and I'm seeing a, a ton of stuff available out there today. A lot of, uh, of PE firms, a lot of founders are saying, how do I get a liquidity event? How do I capitalize on, on surviving in the restaurant space? I mean, there's a lot of private companies that, that took a lot of PPP money and pocketed it and, and you know, survived and came out stronger than they were before. You know, public company like Fat Brands, we weren't able to do that. But, and and you know, some of them, as we all read about, had to give it back or chose to give it back. Um, but... I, I think that the M&A activity is going to be very, very um, strong in 2022. Uh, it'll be interesting to see where valuations go. Uh, I think that they have probably peaked here. And we've seen some look crazy IPO prices, crazy IPO prices. And look, more power to them. They got them done. But when you know, how do you how do you raise the kind of money that we we saw get done in 2021? at per store valuations that, you know, are off the charts and the restaurant businesses don't make money. So I, I think that you're going to see some level set here in terms of valuations. I think that on the M&A side, same story. Um, there will be guys that continue to try to sort of follow our model and build out a, uh, you know, a multi-brand portfolio strategy. Uh, and try to you know, take advantage of synergies, back office, et cetera. So I, I think that's going to be active. Uh, but I, I do, so I, and, I, and I just see a lot of deal flow. I just think valuations are going to, are softening a little bit. And look, we've got an upward rate environment we're sailing into. The inflation environment, you know, anybody who thinks it's transitory is wrong. It's, it's here. And restaurant operators never lower their prices. They're not going to roll back prices. And, you know, the, we need to see the supply chain catch up here. It's, it's starting to, but... There's still a big equipment backlog. You can't get restaurants open as fast as you want to because you can't get refrigeration or you can't get you know whatever. So all that's going to take, I think, somewhat of a toll. I mean, we're we're really well positioned as a business because our supply chain is strong. Our our um, equipment supply chain is good. We we'll, we'll get somewhere between 100 and 150 restaurants open during 2022, and we're we're almost at uh, 100 for for 2021. Here we still got I don't know five or ten to go before the end of the year, which is nuts. Um, but I just think that the M&A the world will continue just at a more normalized, more modest level than it did in 2021, where it was such a bounce back. You mentioned um, earlier that you that there's a lot of um, bids you guys made that you know didn't initially make the news. Um, I don't mean to put you on a spot here, but is there any particular one that you're uh, willing to share that um, that you guys bid on that you you look back on it like, man, I wish we would have been able to um, get that one. No, I mean, I, I don't think I can single one out. There, there are there are some um, some categories, um, particularly probably in the polished casual space, where there are other acquisitions we wanted to make in 2021 to add on to like the Twin Peaks category that mm -hmm. for different reasons we couldn't get done in the time that we had to, to do it in 2021 or that the, the price was just getting challenging or the capital markets were saying, you know, geez, you've done a lot, you know, how much more do you really want to do? So it was sort of a balancing act of making sure investors were calm and happy and supportive and listening to investors. I think something that's very important is to, you know, listen to your investors. And, you know, they were obviously they, they gave us almost a billion dollars in, in 2021 to make acquisitions. 
And so I think when that happens, um, you know, you, you listen to them and if they say like, hey, you know, are you, how are you doing on the acquisitions you've made? Hey, look, you know what? Let's prove how we're doing to you on those acquisitions. Let's see how 2022 goes. Let us build out that pipeline. Let us realize that EBITDA. Let's print those earnings and let everyone see for themselves how the synergies have worked out. And so it's not so much that there's one brand that got away. There's a few that I wish we had bought. I'm not going to go into the, the details of them, but it's for some of the reasons I just mentioned more so than the, the bid got away from us. It's not that we couldn't have paid more. I think we're just listening to the market and listening to our investors say, hey, we're super supportive, but you know, can you start walking instead of running? And you know, it, it's, not, it's not bad advice. Uh, we, you know, we've got this management team that's, that's incredible. Um, it's very strong. You know, it, it's, it's really, you know, it's really here to run this business. And uh, I feel like the ones I mentioned earlier where we, for different reasons, didn't pursue the bid further, like too many company-owned stores, too much of a turnaround play, like heavy lifting. Those are some of the other reasons besides just the investors where we felt like with all the acquisition activity we've made this year, do we want to get involved in a big turnaround? Because that just sucks so much time out of you versus a momentum acquisition where there's a lot of growth coming of new store openings. And that's a lot easier to execute on than trying to turn around, you know, brands with declining same store sales comps and things like that. Um, and we've been in those businesses before. We've had other, you know, uh, brands in our portfolio that have taken a lot of heavy lifting and not really, you know, bounced back. They're tiny today compared to what our, you know, overall portfolio is like Ponderosa or um, even our Mediterranean brand, Yala, they're tiny, but all that combined is less than one half of 1%. But, um, you know, I, I think that's sort of been our, our view is let's, let's pay what we need to pay to buy these growth brands and execute on the growth. And that's going to move the needle far, far faster in the right direction than doing a cheap turnaround play. So what, uh, what do you think about all these restaurants going public, especially all these fast casuals? I mean, that was one dry, dry space there for a long time. And then suddenly you had this, you know, three, four month span where everybody, to your point, were getting these really wild valuations. And then you say, OK, well, now I kind of get why <laughs> they might have wanted to go ahead and do this. And then the numbers drop back down. And, you know, here we are at the turn of the calendar and it's not so uh, cut and dry anymore. And so I, I wonder personally you know, whether or not that continues, you know, maybe it doesn't, maybe it goes back to saying something like, you know, we haven't had a full service brand do it in two or three years. And, you know, then you've got three or four. So yeah, no. did that catch you off guard? I mean, did you see that coming or, you know, what do you kind of think about all so that? So when we went public in 2017, we were the first restaurant company to go public in three years, I think. And, right. and yeah, so there was exactly. a big dry spell. And then we went public, you know, using the reggae formula onto the NASDAQ and even that was a challenge for us because with the Reg A system, you don't have the institutional sponsorship to stand behind your stock price. And it, it just was a lot of heavy lifting to get it done. But, you know, we did it. Um, these value and, and our valuation was conservative. You know, it was, it was, it was very conservative. We, in Reg A, you kind of set your own price and, and people come in or they don't. Um, I think the valuations of many of the recent IPOs are nuts. And there, there's yeah. just no way to justify the unit economics translating into an enterprise value. I don't care how much growth that, that, that is projected. You can't pay tens of millions of dollars per store to you know, say, oh, well, we're, it'll, it'll average out over time. And then the, the overall business doesn't make money anyway. Like it, and you know, so I, I think um, that is going to change. I, I think that you know, time, there's a lot to timing, right? And you get lucky, you get something done good for them. I hope that investors 
are rewarded in the long term with those uh, IPOs coming back above their IPO price and growing and, and becoming mature businesses where they cash flow and pay dividends and all those things. Uh, but geez, you know, that, these were these were really high prices. Um, I don't think the market will support that going forward. I think it'll be reasonable. And, you know, look, we also have this um, elephant in the room called the SPAC market, right, which is you know just a disaster. We've looked at a bunch of SPACs um, kind of doing the opposite of like, should we buy a SPAC to raise equity and delever instead of um, being bought by a SPAC, right? We're already public. We don't need to do that. And, you know, there, there's some deals that, that'll probably make sense out there. Um, and, and, you know, but I, I don't see investors, you know, you have to have a hockey stick growth story to de-SPAC or to go public. If, if you're SPACable, you're IPOable. It's the same thing. And so, and, and look, SPACs aren't any faster. I totally disagree with the notion that you can get to market quicker in a SPAC than you can with an IPO. They both take a long time. You've got to have tons of, of appropriate disclosure. The SEC has to look at it and, and comment or not and you know, ask questions or ask for more disclosure. And so it takes a long time. There's shareholder notice periods, vote periods, things like that. You know, I, I'm, I'm sort of six of one half dozen of the other. Um, you get a sponsor with a SPAC, but you know, with a good investment bank, you sort of get a sponsor anyway. So I think that valuations are just going to come down. That there'll still be activity, uh, but I, I don't, you know, you got a lot a lot of SPACs out there. And, uh, you know, there's some guys that are focused heavily on food technology. That's interesting. You probably get a higher valuation in food technology because it's going to, they're going to try to value it as a tech company, even though, you know, it's still a food company. And I think that's probably interesting uh, and, and probably easier to attribute a high value to than pure brick and mortar concepts. Um, but just, just saying we've got ordering available online or on a mobile app, or we've got delivery or something else, you know, it's not a tech company, right? So I don't know how you get a tech company valuation by having the bells and whistles that every restaurant company should have today as part of, you know, their, their, um, you know, quiver full of arrows. Yeah. I mean, obviously no one invited me to the boardroom, but I think it, it makes you think, you know, with Tillman paying $33 million as, you know, Ben wrote about just to get out of one, <laughs> the SPAC side, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, whether or not some of that movement was a little bit of a cart before the horse type of situation, or people just started to realize what they were getting into. You know, I often wonder that same question when I, you know, when you sit on your first earnings call, <laughs> you know, as a brand, as an IPO, sure. and you think to yourself, what did I do, you know? So um, I think that was an interesting situation that maybe is a, sign of things to come on that front you know obviously we don't know but maybe you have a guy with a great platform and and he's very bright and look he started down this path during covid when things were a mess and you know he had to raise capital um, lost a lot of money because so many closures and they were you know fine dining and full service restaurants and casinos and stuff like that so you know i understand the, the logic of i need to do what i need to do to raise capital to keep my doors open or to keep my business afloat and he did that and, and uh, a very supportive banker, and, and they did that. And so it made a lot of sense. But also, you know, in hindsight, you can look at some of those decisions and say, I'm not sure I really need that in this environment now that things have stabilized and that doors are back open again. And so, you know, look, if there's a breakup fee, if you will, um, and that's what he paid, you know, that breakup fee might and probably does pale in comparison to the value that he's preserved for himself without having to be diluted in a, in a, in the overhang of sponsorship of the SPAC. And so, you know, I think that makes sense. Also, he's got the online gaming business angle. 
which, you know, again, can get valued on the tech side of things and maybe, you know, not as, not as necessary to value it as, um, you know, with overhang from a SPAC sponsorship play where you've got to give some of it away. And, and so I, I think that is a sign of things to come. I, I just think the SPAC market, it has a lot of issues and there will be, there are a lot of smart guys too. And their deals will get done and uh, they probably won't get done as rich as they could have gotten done, you know, at, at times past, just like general M&A, but deals will get done. This, that market will get cleaned up, um, but it's definitely over, you know, oversubscribed today. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, looking ahead, we're only um, just a couple of weeks away from the new year. I was hoping um, you could share what your uh, 22, 2022 predictions are for the restaurant industry. What do you think is um, ready to unfold next year? Well, and, and before you answer, Andy, I will say I asked Carl this question and his answer was murky. <laughs> you know, it is a typical fashion, but, <laughs> you know, he believes in uh, Fazoli's for sure. Um but, you know, stealth inflation and some other things were labor for one, definitely were, were concerns of his. But yes, um, you know, what do you think we have ahead? Well, I think that, you know, look, I think this is going to be a good year. 2022 is going to be a good year for the restaurant industry. Um, is it is it an off the charts bounce back year from, you know, like 2021 was in terms of reopenings? You know, I, I don't know that you can continue at that pace. Um, what What we saw across the portfolio was such an increase in delivery and to go and third party, you know, third party, all that because of COVID and because of shutdowns that when dining rooms opened again, you had such an increased awareness of delivery and to go availability that overall sales went up because you had people coming back to the restaurants and you had more delivery and to go business or drive through business than you ever had before because of that increased awareness. So that gave an overall lift on top of that overall lift you've got inflation, which has price increases. So as you see sales go up, you've got to ask yourself how much of that is price and how much traffic count have you lost? Because everybody knows, you know, 1% increase in price, it's sort of a 1% decrease in traffic. That's the conventional you know, sort of metric. Um, so I think we're going to see some of that. We're going to see some margin compression because of inflation. I, I encourage restaurant operators to take price and maintain their margin because if they don't, they're not going to make money and they risk going out of business. And, you know, look, um, all the stimulus packages that, that came through have a real cost to the economy. And that's going to come either in taxes or it's going to come in inflation. And, you know, everybody knows that and everybody should know that that's coming. When you have a higher minimum wage, someone's got to pay for it. And it's not the restaurant operator. He just can't. Guys make 5 to 15 percent bottom line in their restaurants. And you can't have minimum wage go from 10 to 15 dollars or whatever it is, you know, 50 percent increase and not think that that doesn't eat up all of your margin. You got to take price. Um, so I do think that concepts that have resiliency uh, for different reasons, like they have um, drive-through, like, like Fazoli's, they have delivery and to-go, you know, those brands will do well and consumers have been very inelastic in terms of willing to pay for those services. I think on the polished casual side, or even on the casual side, people want to get out and be in restaurants. They were miserable being locked down. And so I think people will go back out. They'll, they'll you know, choose their, their path of, uh, to, to being safe, you know, vaccinations, masks, whatever it is. But people want to go out. And so I think we'll see that continued uh, growth. We, we definitely see it on the franchise sales side. We sold more franchises in 2021 than in 2019, 2020 um, put together. And, and 
uh, and probably even adding in 2018. And so a lot of guys want to be independent business people instead of, um, you know, working somewhere. So that labor paradigm is pretty interesting. It's shot definitely a pain in the butt, right? Um, it's harder for the mom and pop operator than it is for the multi-unit operator. The multi-unit guy can kind of shuffle people around, pay a little overhead and make it work. But the guy who's opening his first restaurant has to hire his first manager. That, that guy's got trouble. I think that was a dog in an office, which is a sign, a sign of how the world has changed. Uh, large dog though i think i didn't uh, see him on the screen there so you does he come to work is that a... work. yeah fritz my german shepherd oh man i wish i could do that i have a basset hound she uh she doesn't move too much oh there i see the dog now look at but anyway yeah <laughs> no, it's, uh, you know it's this uh, last uh you know whatever 20 months it's been you either have kids or dogs usually online with whoever you're talking or to. the amazon driver at the yeah. door yeah i guess <laughs> that that too these are just accepted realities of uh of our lives now which you know it's cool and um you know also same things he said with supply and things of that nature i'm still waiting on the couch i ordered in july which i've mentioned on this podcast about five different times so you know It'll come. We, we had a guy in the office uh, get a couch for his office. Um, it, it arrived yesterday. He ordered it in April. Oh my god! Well, I, yeah, that's that's, that's better than me. I, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I ordered literally in July, and it's still not here. Uh, what is happening to this Danny. country? And maybe maybe they're listening. Just keep on yeah. saying it each podcast, and hope for the best. Yeah, uh, who is that that we were trying? We were trying to get DJ Khaled to notice. Oh yeah, <laughs> with his virtual brand the other day. Yeah, I yeah. don't think I didn't get any emails from him. No, I, I think he might have. Uh, yeah, might have bypassed us. Yes. Um, all right, cool. Well, Andy, uh, questions wise, that was pretty much all we had, and we really appreciate you. But is there something you'd like to get in? You know, toward the end here, maybe if someone wants to reach you, you know, how they might find you, or on social, or just where. To- you know, look into the brands if they're interested in that, or we'll just give you a chance to sign off here. Thanks very much for having me, guys. You know, um, Fat Brands has had an explosive year of growth. We're going to focus on building out our brands in 2022, and you know, we, we appreciate the, all the support in the industry and, and from vendors and employees and franchise partners and and all the different uh, activities. And you know, wish everyone a very healthy uh, 2022. And, and, and thanks again. Yeah, no problem. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back, of course, at some point next week, I think. Uh, we've got a few podcasts lined up, so always appreciate listening. And you know, thank you, Andy, again. And I would thank Ben, but he's uh, on my payroll, I guess, so I don't have to. Um, and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks again.